Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. My guest today is Joseph Chambra, a Catholic writer, speaker, and author of the book Swallowed by Satan, How Our Lord Jesus Christ Saved Me from Pornography, Homosexuality, and the Occult. He also has an active outreach ministry in the Castro District of San Francisco known as Jesus Loves Gay Men. He also blogs at josephchambra.com. Joseph, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Steve. You have, I think, a very powerful uh, and unconventional conversion story. Would you mind, for those not familiar with you and your work, just summarizing kind of your journey and how you've gotten to where you are? Sure. I, I can do it fairly quickly. Um, I mean, I was the prodigal son, you know, I wanted everything now. And um, I, I was raised marginally Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, um, but made up my mind fairly early on. And I can get into that more if you want. I mean, I grew up in the in the 1970s. In sure, the yeah, 80s, let's talk the, about it. The eight, well, there's the post-conciliar church. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of emotion, uh, no doctrine, no theology, nothing substantial, no truth. Everything was relative, um, a lot of indifference. Um, you know, we made it up as we went along, and I did that, and uh, decided that I was gay and left home. And, uh, you know, my family was fairly, I wouldn't say liberal, but not Catholic. And, right. um, yeah, so I, they had a problem with me being gay, but but not a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And um, left, went to San Francisco, got into everything I could. You know, I've done everything gay that you can imagine. and And I know that world. But, you know, like the prodigal son, everything just went wrong. And I ended up sleeping with pigs, literally. And uh, it just it just shocked me out of it. And uh, turned around and went home. Went home. I mean, would literally. you say there was a moment where you just, you definitively see that as sort of, you know, they call it your bottom. I mean, your turning point. Was there a moment <laughs> where you said, that, that's enough. I'm done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, it's fun. Well, yeah, it is. Um, I, it just, it got too dark for me. I got into a lot of, a lot of very, you know, there's, there's a lot of extremes in the gay world and not, and not everybody goes to the extreme, but if you, if you want to, it's readily available and, um, nobody is going to, no, at, at least publicly, nobody's gonna, um, say anything against you for for going that way and right. you know i i did and um 
it just got very sadistic and ugly and um death became a reality and um christ just said to me you can either live or you can die you can go to hell or you can have another chance and i took i took i took another chance that's fantastic it's and and i mean i don't know is that a very i mean that's not a very common thing is it I would say, you know, I've talked about this in the past um, because people want to know, not so much people that are in the gay life, because when you're in it, you don't really think about getting out. You're just in it and it's the way things are. But for people that have loved ones and family members in the gay life, they want to know, you know, how can my son or how can my brother get out of the life? And I just... And I, I, I try to tell them, you can pray for that person, but ultimately they are the ones that have to get out. And like you said, um, almost like an alcoholic, you do have to sort of reach your limits. Mm-hmm. And then you say enough is enough. I mean, it happens for different people in different ways. I mean, I had friends, especially during the AIDS era where they lost somebody or they lost several people and, and they finally said, you know, I've had enough. I'm, I'm done with this. Um, for me, it was, it was different. I mean, I, my threshold was, I think, a lot higher um, because I had lost people to AIDS and um, that I didn't get out after that. I just, I just kept going with it. So it's different for different people, but Ultimately, yeah. they, they have to make the decision, and I just think it has to get bad for them. That, that's, this is another, this is a, on a tangent, but that's why I tell people, if you have someone in the gay life, don't make it any easier for them. Yeah, um, I want to talk to you about that more later. I actually, okay. I, it's one of the topics that I think that you, you handle that very few people do, and I think it's really important advice. But So, so you leave San Francisco. I mean, you literally get in your car and you leave. I did. But then, I mean, what then? Do, would you say that you were healed of same-sex attraction? Is that even language that you would use? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, I went home to my parents. I, you know, um, you know, my parents were willing to put up with my you know, BS to a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started coming home with freaky people, you know, um, you know specifically my dad had said, um, you're not welcome, which was the right thing to do. Right. And, um, but when I called the, well, it happened a little more dramatically than that. I ended up in the hospital and my mother had, um, you know, come to see me. And, um, when I got out of the hospital, you know, she took me home and I said, and I just told them I'm, I'm done. And of course they, they took me in and said, you know, we'll do whatever. I mean, at the basic level, they provided me with a room and a bed and, and a place to, I was pretty sick physically. Mm-hmm. And um, the healing process took a while um, because the gay, and I don't want to say the gay demon, but the gay, um, it is a demon, but the gay um, spirit is a tough one to kick. And um, although God rescued me out of, the place I was in, the physical place, the spirit lingered, and that took a while to to get rid of. 
I want to talk to you about both of the the components to this, the spiritual one that you you just brought up. Um, I mean, your title talks about you know being saved from the occult. Um, you talk about the demonic, and I and I think that it's something that is unfortunately underplayed. But I also, before I get to that, I want to ask you about the big nature versus nurture discussion. I think you take a different approach to it. You know, is it genetic? Is it learned behavior? Is it from you know malformed relationships in youth? What is it? Where does it come from? You are definitely not born that gay. That's one thing I do know. Um, there's three. There's I would say there's three things that lead people to gay, that get people into gay. And they've changed over the years just because society and the family has changed. Mm -hmm. um, number one, it, it's a traumatic event in childhood, abuse, primarily sexual abuse by somebody of the same sex. Um, number two, you'll have a faulty relationship with the father or um, an abusive relationship with the father or a missing father or combined with that, there's a failure for the boy to um, bond with, with male peers. The third one is an early exposure to pornography. Um, initially, I would say that, and I've seen it change, because I mean, I went into gay in the 80s, so at that time, although a lot of those guys that came out, that they were the first guys to come out, post Stonewall in the seventies, they were still alive. They were dying off though. Mm -hmm. um, they were, they kind of had what I would say is the classic gay boy syndrome, which is a distant, unloving father and an overprotective mother. Um, you know, to, to a degree we all, you know, conf I'd say that sort of changed, um, where, you know, my generation that came out in the 80s, you had a lot of boys that came from broken homes. But I mean, you still had, so, this is getting kind of complicated, but you still had variations on that classic gay boy syndrome, where there was something wrong with, with the father. You know, I've never met, I've never met a gay guy that had a really good relationship with his dad. Never. A lot of times they'll tell you because, because they know that some people that come from my point of view are, are going to say that. So they'll say, oh, no, you're wrong. But when you talk right. to them a little further and they start describing their childhood, I mean, right away the bells and whistles start going. You start to pick up on it. Yeah. yeah but it, it, it's all, and this is sort of a tangent too, there's sort of a shared delusion in the gay world because you all come from the same kind of background and you all kind of talk about it to each other and it's not weird anymore because you've all kind of got the same cloying mothers and distant fathers so it doesn't seem unusual to you whereas like in fact, it's probably a sort of a point of bonding because you're like <laughs> oh i went through the same thing right i mean that's yeah. that's what people do it, we it all is. look for our shared brokenness and, and yeah, we commiserate it is now now what i see recently is a lot of boys getting into homosexuality, especially bisexuality, is because of pornography. It's insane. <laughs> I, I want to get I want to yeah. get to the to the role of pornography, but I I there this is kind of a two part thing. So I do want to ask you about you know you talk about the gay demon. I mean you I I have not had the opportunity yet to read your book, so I don't know the stories you've told there, but but I know that I mean this is a 
look, it, spiritual warfare is real for all of us, uh, and and the demons are there for all of us. But oh yeah, but I mean, you've had an experience that I think that makes that drives it home more, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a little it's a literal experience and it's a metaphorical experience. I mean, most gay people will tell you that they grew up rather alienated, lonely. I don't care what family they came in, grew up in. Um, um, you know, a feeling of isolation, that sort of, that situation lends itself very well to outside influences mm-hmm. coming into our lives, um, where we just open ourselves up literally to evil. And it's not that yeah. we do it consciously. It's not like we're saying, you know, I want to become possessed or I, but it's just, um, there's a desperation in homosexuality. And, and a lot of times it comes from a good place where you're just desperate for love and right. desperate for acceptance and desperate for, to be affirmed. Um, if you, especially if you've come from a childhood of abuse and it yeah. just, it just opens you up for this stuff. And all of a sudden, especially when you get into the gay lifestyle or the gay community because sexuality and sex and perversity, I know they're going to deny it, but all you have to do is go to any gay pride parade and you'll see it. It's so open and it's so, it's so pervasive that you just buy into it and you don't realize what you're buying into. I mean, the the devil is very deceptive. It can make it look really good. But mm-hmm. you don't really realize what you're getting. And I didn't. When I walked into San Francisco in 1988, I mean, AIDS was raging, but I wasn't really sure what I was getting into. I had no idea. You just you just were looking for something that you didn't know how to fill. I thought it was, you know, it was like people say I'm finding myself. I just thought I was going to look t- and find who I was. I found a lot more than that. I mean, you're just going to find all kinds of people in the gay world. Um, The extremes are really, really, are really evident. Spiritually, what is the weapon that you have found is most effective in in combating that demonic influence? Hmm. Wow. I would say just staying close to our Lord Jesus Christ, staying close to the sacraments, the Eucharist, confession, um, Our Lady through the Rosary, St. Joseph, especially for men, just a strong devotion to St. Joseph, the terror of demons. And um, if you have those, if you have that, you're going to be okay. What sounds um, simple? It sounds simple. No, I mean, it's the thing is, though, I mean, those are essentials, they are absolutely essentials. And I think the rosary, in, in particular, in terms of personal devotion, I mean, the sacraments obviously provide a grace that nothing else can, but yeah. but in terms of the private devotions, the rosary is, is the weapon that yeah. everybody needs. It's just tradition, it's just, it's just going back to tradition. And it's funny because I was raised in San Francisco in the 70s, very liberal. Um, whatever goes, you know, right. um, this was post Vatican II. And when I came back to the church in 1999, it's strange, but, 
you know, because I was raised a very liberal Catholic, but it's like inherently it was just infused in me because I, it's like once you've like been in the suburbs of hell, you you just kind of know like what the core is and you don't want right. to go back to it. So when I came back to the church, I just sort of, I didn't want anything halfway. I didn't want flaky Catholicism. Yeah. And I ended up going back to a very like sort of what some people would say is like a hard line form of Catholicism, but it's the only thing that works. Well, you know, something that I saw you write about recently is your experiences coming out of that and trying to go to confession. <laughs> and you said, I think you said that it was in the SSPX was the only place you actually found people that were willing to counsel you that, yeah, let's, you know, not, not in a cruel way, but Hey, let's, let's yeah. reform your life and repent. And these are the things you can do. It, it wasn't the only place, but I had to go through so many priests that either told me I had been born gay or that actually I should go back to the gay lifestyle. I mean, this is the insanity That's of it. Insane. And they yeah. knew I was sick. I mean, I was literally dying. And, um, but they just had bought into it so badly. And I just, I had gotten to the point where I was kind of like, maybe Catholicism is not the place for me. Maybe I'm just going to stay home and read the Bible and, which some people have done, you know, right. and, um, but I did, I ended up, I ended up discovering the Tridentine mass and I started going to traditional priests and I just, you know. I just found the truth there. That's yeah. what I wanted. That that's what I wanted. Yeah. What's that? Is that still the the mass that you primarily attend? I no. I go. I go to, you know, the Tridentine Mass, and I I, I go to the Nova Sordo as well. Okay. No, it's it's just something I didn't actually know about you. It's interesting because the majority, not all of our audience, is very attracted to to that liturgy. I, I, I write about it. The, yeah. I write about it in my book at, okay. at length about the Tridentine Mass. I have to, we're going to, just so you know, we're going to link uh, oh, to good. your website and to the book and all that uh, on, on the page for the podcast because I want people to be able to, to look into this stuff and I need to read it too. Um, I've been meaning to do it for a while. So um, let me ask you this. So you mentioned this already. What, why is pornography so significant uh, in the role that it plays here and and I mean, it's obviously this is not just a, a gay issue. Pornography is affecting everybody. Tell what is your take that. on that? That could take an hour. I'll I'll try to break it down. <laughs> okay, and I'll I'll try to I'll try to break it down really quick. Um, you know, pornography. I be, because I've been involved with it as a viewer and also as a participant. I kind of know both sides. Mm -hmm. As a viewer, it preys especially upon certain men especially on boys, again, who are like feeling alienated or persecuted or lonely or whatever, it, you know, it really becomes a refuge. It's become, you know, I've seen it over and over again. It becomes a doorway into, you know, literally into the demonic because, I mean, what you are watching, especially with internet porn, mm -hmm. because I was involved with pornography but not internet pornography because I left I left the gay lifestyle in porn in 1999. Just as sort of the internet world was, it was really sort of gelling. Yeah. So I, I didn't I don't ha, I and I don't have experience with that whole you know that whole sphere. But 
from what I've learned is that the pornography that is on the internet is ex- is extremely hardcore, you know, um, hardcore S and M and bestiality and, um, um, you know, group sex, things that I never got exposed to. Right. Um, so that is going to warp you seriously. I mean, you are just going to think that that stuff is okay. And, this is why I'm seeing young men get into the gay lifestyle because, uh, and I'm getting off the pornography thing, but in the all male world of the gay community, you do not have the tempering influence of women. I mean, there are things that I don't care how kinky some girls can get. There are things they're not going to do. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I used to frequent prostitutes, and I used to frequent, not frequent, but I knew the girls that did gay, uh, that did, you know, straight porn. I mean, there were things that they just would not do. Right. Literally, you can go into the gay world, and you can find a number of men that are going to do the most extreme acts right. that you do see in pornography. And that's a draw to some young men because, and it was to me, because I got into the gay world because I could live out this weird fantasy world that I had gotten into with pornography um, very quickly and very easily. I mean, within 10 minutes of walking into a gay bar or a gay club or a gay uh, bathhouse or whatever, it's just readily available because you do not have women there. Um and um it's, and you're saying that they just have an instinct that it's like okay there there are boundaries women yeah it's just a hormonal difference between testosterone and estrogen i mean i'm not a scientist but i mean at one time that i makes was sense. i mean i was i was uh, a bisexual at one time and i did date women and and I kind of gave up on bisexuality because it's just women would not do the things that men would do. They just would. Not. I mean, I don't want to get into particulars, right, right? But they just wouldn't do it. No, I mean, I've actually, I've actually heard that um, elsewhere. I heard it recently. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, gentleman who is becoming more and more well known, Milo Yiannopoulos. He's a yes, I know who he yeah. is. And he and he was saying, you know, he's a homosexual, but he was saying that he wishes that he wasn't. He's he's a believing Catholic, although I don't know how practicing he is because he advertises his promiscuity. But in his vulnerable moments, he'll say things like, I, I don't want to be this way. If I could take a pill, I would. And <laughs> I would rather have a family and a wife and children. And he's like, and actually, once a year, I try it out with a woman just to make sure I still don't like it. And I don't. I get bored. <laughs> But I mean, he's very, very open about it. And at the same time, you can see that he can tell this is not making him happy. In fact, he says it. There is a pervasive restlessness in gay men. And, you know, I I experienced it. And I've seen this, um, particularly in some studies recently, because I I saw this um, anecdotally when I was gay where uh, a lot of times you would have gay men, especially who were a little older, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in their 30s or 40s, who would start to couple up and say, you know, create a monogamous relationship. But within those relationships, I saw some of these men contracting AIDS and actually dying. 
Um, because, and studies have been done recently that these so-called monogamous relationships are not really monogamous, that they're open relationships. Because right. there is always this restlessness within gay men because it's just with two men it just doesn't work there's not there's not a cohesiveness there it's it, and, there's something that doesn't get satisfied on a on a, on a natural no, law level yeah it lacks and um and tr tragically what you have now and it's complicated but the majority of hiv cases in the gay community over 60 percent are within steady relationships mm. Yeah, meaning the gay men are getting HIV more so from their husband or boyfriend than from a stranger. Do you think, um, you know, this is, some, somebody mentioned to me recently, somebody who'd worked in the pro-life movement for a long time, that things like the Genocide Awareness Project that shows the reality of what happens in abortion is while it's jarring, it's one of the few things that they have found is effective in changing the minds of people who otherwise wouldn't consider uh, just how bad abortion really is. And they said, honestly, we need something similar to the extent that people could take it with the homosexual lifestyle. I mean, you've talked about the physical damage that it, it does to, to bodies, the, the shortening of lifespan, the in, incidence yeah. of disease, all this stuff. But then I also wonder... Um, would it be effective? Is pornography sort of immunizing the straight population against the kinds of things that they might have otherwise found revolting? Yeah. Um, because they're seeing it, you know, in straight porn. They have, they have, there are studies that have shown that men who watch pornography regularly are, you know, more open to accepting, accepting of homosexuality on a social level. You know, on a right. cultural level, because yeah, it, it does have that. It does have that effect. You know, as for your other point about maybe sort of shocking people or, or telling them, I, I would say it would only work in terms of young people who haven't entered the life. Mm -hmm. I think once you've made the decision that you're gay and you're going to go into the life, it's very difficult to turn somebody around. Because, like again, I went into. I went into gay in 1988, which probably was the worst time in history for a gay man to go into the life. You couldn't have picked a worse time, but, but I did it anyway, because I just felt like it was the only place I belonged. I just felt like I had to go there. And I mean, part and parcel of that, it was kind of a failure on the part of the church. And, and it kind of takes me back to that massacre in Orlando because where you had all these these poor guys, I guess a few gals too, just congregating in a gay club, um, it, it's just the only place they felt like they belonged, and they just end up in these places. And I, I mean, I did too. It's just, I don't know, the church a lot of times has just failed us, and we just end up going there because we don't know anywhere else to go. So let's talk about that. Um, I mean, I, I've definitely seen you express frustration a number of times over the way the church is handling people who have same-sex attraction or are actively living in that lifestyle. You know, what is the problem, in your opinion, with, with what's going on with the church? Why and how is it failing these people? Hmm. I know. I, wanna, I don't want to be politically correct, but I don't want to scandalize people. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, you know, I think to a certain degree, the child abuse sex scandal, which was mainly perpetrated by gay priests against boys, I think those priests have been pretty much weeded out. Okay. Um, th just through court cases and um, just through the legal system. I think there are a number of priests who remain in the church who are, if not gay, actively homosexual, are certainly sympathetic towards the gay cause. And I'm not just saying this because I believe it. I'm saying it because I know these, these men and I've talked to them and they've tried to counsel me. Um, so oftentimes these priests, because they're interested, you know, in the topic of homosexuality and they're interested in, you know, quote unquote, ministering to the gay community, they mm -hmm. oftentimes are given positions of power or given pastoralships at churches where there are large gay communities. And then you have this environment, this toxic environment. It's just feeding in, them. In the parish where there is gay affirmation. Um, sometimes not going as far as like saying approving every sort of deviancy that you find in the gay community. But I mean, I was told by priests that, okay, you know, scale it back a little bit, you know, go and look for someone and settle down with one guy. I mean, that you see a lot of time. And I'm not saying it's everywhere. I'm certainly not saying that every priest does that. But I'm saying that in certain parishes, usually in large cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, where you have gay men in the parish and you have a gay affirming priest, it sets up an environment that is madness. Oh yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I, from, listen, from the priests that I know, um, they have told me that it is still very much a problem. Um, some of them have been more or less driven out of the priesthood because they felt that they were oh. just surrounded by it. Oh no. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, I just we, had a conversation with somebody the other day about that. Oh, that's too bad. Um, well, we need them. We don't want them driven. I know. Out. I know. <laughs> But it's it, it can be very difficult for them because they feel trapped. Um, hey, hey, I I know priests in the Bay Area who have really tried to take you know, really tried to take the church's position on this issue and have found themselves persecuted. It's, oh, I believe it. It's just a world turned upside down. Well, I mean, it reaches every echelon of power within the church. You know, one of the most well-known situations that exists today, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the administrator of the papal household, Monsignor Batista Rica, has had a number of, of articles written about times he's been caught with rent boys or oh, dear. pornography in his suitcase. I mean, it's it's to the point where this has been going on for decades, and it's not an unknown quantity, and yet... There he is overseeing the papal household at, at the Casa Santa Marta. So yeah. it, it's it, the acceptance goes all the way to yeah. the top. It yeah. Seems. I, yeah. I mean, on a personal level, it's not that I don't care what these people do. It's between them and God. 
in in what I do in a ministry, it makes things very difficult for me because when I have men that talk to me and you know are maybe actively thinking about the Catholic Church, I have to be very cautious about what church and what priests I send them to. Yes, because absolutely. if they if they walk into their local parish, I have no idea it, because I did that. You know, when I came back to the church. I just walked into a church. I didn't know, you know, I just thought, well, and I got some crazy information. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a common problem for everybody who's trying to evangelize right now. You don't know what kind of failed catechesis you're sending people into. You don't know what kind of liturgical abuse, you know, you add this layer to it on as well as something I hadn't even thought about, but I, that's, it's, it's crazy. It's very dire too, because you, a priest, could be sending somebody to their death in the yeah. gay world. Mm-hmm. It's just not something to mess around with. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, <sighs> you know, it, what we're talking about is becoming a bigger question. With with what happened in Orlando, um, we're seeing it. You know, social media concentrates our ability to to see sort of deviant opinions and and bad opinions. And, you know, I, I was looking through Facebook last night for something. And I came across a priest who had put the rainbow banner on his picture and was talking about how hell probably doesn't exist and all this kind of stuff. And of course he was expressing, you know, extreme solidarity with the community in in Orlando and things like that. And it's like, people aren't really hiding anymore. It's made worse though, because we have bishops. I don't know if you've seen the bishop statements that have been coming out, but in particular, I I read a few. Yeah. in In particular, one bishop, um, you know, basically said that Catholics are persecuting yes, I uh, uh, gays and, um, you know, that we're targeting gays and breeding contempt for them. And, yes. um, and it, someone pointed out to me today, could you imagine if a bishop expressed solidarity specifically toward any other group that's exclusively defined by their immoral behavior, thieves, murderers, whatever. I mean, sodomy is obviously a sin. It's not just a sin. It's a sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance. And it's, it's, it's serious enough that, like you said, you're leading people to their deaths, but their, but their act of solidarity is not with people, human beings who are victims. It's with a community that identifies by their sin. The, mm, okay. I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I'm mean, going to have a little different take. Okay, this, I want to hear it. I, yeah, you know, I'm more critical of the hierarchy than I of than I am of the poor sinner. This is why, mm-hmm. because because I w- I've never been in the hierarchy. I was one of the poor sinners. Um, <laughs> you know, when when I went into gay, and there was a very good possibility that I could contract AIDS, and at that time, forget it, you're dead. But you know, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die, but I just felt like in gay, that was the only place I belonged. And those poor men, and I guess a few women that walked into that gay club in Orlando, you know, they didn't go in there wanting to die and, you know, they don't deserve to die. Right. But in this culture, it's just that gay people believe that they have nowhere else to go, that they have to go into the gay community because this culture says if you have same-sex attraction, automatically you are gay. Mm-hmm. So gay is where you belong. And it's unfortunate where the church should be um, just a, just an oasis of stability and peace and truth and honesty and um, 
and just understanding it isn't. It's just conflicted and it's confused. And I just don't blame those those people because they just don't, I don't want to say they don't know any better, but, but to a point they really don't. Um, because I was one of them. Because I was one of them. Because I think as a culture we have failed them and as a church we have failed them. Because we haven't offered them anything. You know, when that priest told me, oh, you're gay, what was he offering me? He wasn't offering right. me anything. You know, it's it's the easy way out. And for these bishops to uh, blame the church, and I don't like it when they start calling people gay and lesbian and LGBT and transgender, because this is just confirming the yeah. orientation. They, they shouldn't be calling those, us yeah. that. Yeah, they should be saying my brothers and sisters... You know, it's it's just it's just it's and this just, is and I think this vicious. is the point that I was trying to get at is it's not just uh. like, they should be making statements about, um, you know that these were victims of a crime and that this was right. a tragedy and all that, but but they're making those statements of solidarity with the LGBT community and that's what I'm referring to like that that language is exactly what you're talking that's about. A, it, it uh, yeah, that like, that is a, that is a problem. It's like saying solidarity with the community of thieves. I mean, it's it's like this is not something that you really want to express solidarity with. These people, whether they're yeah. thieves or not, don't deserve to be gunned down. I mean, yeah. that's not the answer to that. So, so I guess if I, I could, yeah, yeah go ahead. Steve, go ahead. Steve, if I, if I could run the church, what you know, what I would say, and this is what I say to these people, because when I go to the gay pride parade, I will have gay affirming Christians and Catholics come up to me and say, hey, you're telling people that they can't be gay, or you're telling this, or you're telling people that they're sinners. I say, no, no, no. I say, what I'm doing is I'm saying, here, here are the facts. You make the choice. We're offering something different. That's what the church needs to do to gay people and say, hey, this is, you know, we're offering something, you know, come and join us. Not, yeah, not to get into this whole, because the whole LGBT thing is so politically fraught. Right, um, right. It, yeah, the church really needs to stand apart from that. Not, not, um, it needs to stand apart, but also offering something different. And that, that's what I don't see. That's what well, I so how do you, I mean, how do you strike the balance? I, laity, clergy, bishops, whoever, you know, when we mourn the tragedy of lost lives, we still have to be careful not to give the appearance of condoning what they're doing. And, and in fact, expressing a concern for their, for the good of their souls and for their conversion, yeah. because as bad as it is to get shot, it's a lot worse to go to hell. Right. So, yeah. I mean, there's not, there's not really a nice way to say that. And at the same time, that's <sighs> what love is. It's saying, I love you and I don't want to see you lose eternal happiness. <clears throat> How do you do that? How do you reach people in that way? I don't know. Without, without just coming across as a mean, you know, jerk. <laughs> um, I think you just have to present the truth. And just say, you are not what you think you are. You know, Pope um, Benedict XVI, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, made it very clear in um, a letter he wrote from the Congregation to the Doctrine of the Faith that we shouldn't reduce people to, you know, heterosexual and homosexual. You know, that every person, you know, has, as he says, problems and difficulties. But what the church provides is you know, an identity 
with God that you are that you are a creature of God and that you're her, you know his chi- his child and you're meant for eternal life. Sounds simple, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So I think when bishops just insert themselves into this whole LGBT milieu, I think they've already made a mistake just from the get go. Yeah, they're buying into this this lie of this is who God made me to be. Yeah, yeah. It just it's it sounds basic, but it is. It is. I, you know, I've always said that this the, the problem of homosexuality is a very basic problem. It's not complex. I think they've it's it's been created into this this sort of weird you know stuff that it just gets into all this stuff transgenderism and identity and all these different things it just keeps bifurcating it just keeps like more and more and more yeah. it never seems to be enough classification <laughs> no it never will but it's very very simple and it's very basic because when you talk to these people that are involved there's a wound from childhood that's just there and it never gets it never gets treated and it just it just lingers. It's, talk sim- to me, it's so simple. Talk to me about your ministry. What is it that you do, and and how is it received? Well, you know, I started it. I initially n- naively thought that, you know, sort of coming back to the church, I would have, I would have something to add to sort of the discourse going on you know, mm-hmm. to use the very liberal terms, you know, I could enter into the dialogue about this issue within the church, but, you know, my voice has been rejected. So I, I do not, you know, I'm, I'm not in that, that dialogue. So, you know, no church parish will have me as a speaker. So, you know, what I did was I just, literally walked from the parish church there in the Castro that said, you know, no, thank you. And I just walked literally two blocks to Castro street, which is the center of the gay universe. And I just started talking to the guys and I just, that's all I did. And I just said, you know, I brought my book and said, here, you're interested, you know, read my website, you know, and, you know, check it out. And and how is that? I mean, how do they take that? How do they receive it? Is it is it ambivalence? Oh, is it hostility? Is it a mix? Is uh, it- it's a mix. I mean, most of them just sort of think I'm a kook, you know, and <laughs> and and that's it. You know, there's a few that get really angry. Not a lot. Um, some of them are just like sort of indifferent. Like, well, that's you know what he's doing. Um, but but occasionally I do meet people that are genuinely interested and just generally kind of at a loose end and like me, like I used to be, and just are, are looking for a way out. And I have helped, you know, people get out of the life who just So said, what do you tell them if they're looking for the way out? I, I just, I just tell them, I give, I just give them a simple message and it's that you do not have to be gay, you know? If you're unhappy in the life, and and I'm not dragging people off the floats at the gay pride parade that are dancing and saying stop this, you know the the people because it's just pointless. But the people that are genuinely not happy in the life, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of guys that just they but they don't know what to do because mm-hmm. the ch- again the church has just been reticent about offering anything. Um, 
and they just don't know where to go. So a lot of them just stay put and they just sort of try to, they just try to stick it out. But I just tell them, you know, there is, and it is, it's kind of bizarre, but it is kind of revelation for them that somebody did get out of the life. And there are a lot of other people that did because, you know, we're not really given much of a platform. So, and, and it gives them hope that, that, yeah, there's, there's something else for me other than gay. Is it you who has observed, I th- I've read this somewhere, I think it's you, who said that you've found a lot of Catholic upbringings among these guys? Oh, oh, yes. Most, I would say the majority of them were Catholic. Yes. I would, gosh, I'm trying to think, just going over my friends. Yeah, most of them were Catholic, were raised Catholic. Oh, yeah. What do you think the connection is? <laughs> um, I just think after Vatican II, things got so flaky and so strange in the church that it just, it sort of bred this relativism where, and I mean, I was told this as a kid where, you know, follow your conscience and just, you know, that will decide what's right and wrong for you. You know, so a lot of, I mean, all of us did that. And those of us that sort of had a gay inclination were kind of like, well, you know, okay, you know, let's go this way. And, you know, it, I don't know. It just, that that's it. It's just, we were never, I hate to go back, I hate to beat a dead horse. But as kids, we were never really given an alternative point of view that perhaps gay wasn't the way to go. You know, and I don't know if that would have stopped a lot of us, but I mean, it might have stopped a few of us. So what do you think that a, that a healthy and helpful pastoral care for people with same-sex attraction should look like? Well, you know, it's different for different ages. Um, for I mean, for people that are in the life, I mean, you, you, it does have to be more caring and more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying hide the catechism like a lot of priests and, you know, prelates are saying, you know, don't talk about disordered. You know, don't talk about these things. You you, you got to talk about these things because it's, it's just it's just what the church teaches. And you know, I I really confronted those what they call difficult patches passages in the catechism right away, and I didn't find them difficult. But you don't know, they? I, kind of, I mean, they force you to confront them in a way. Whereas you know, just this mealy mouth, like oh whatever. You know, it's not the same thing. I mean, when you have somebody presenting an absolute truth to you, doesn't that kind of force you to say, I need to figure out if this is right or wrong because one way or the other, I've got to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, usually gay guys that are leaving the life are usually not equivocating that much. Usually they want out. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, they want a good, strong, masculine, manly priest who, you know, to be a father, um, you know, even a bit to step in for the father they never had, you know, to be forgiving, but to be strong and to be truthful. Um, it's unfortunate because, you know, I, I know these priests and I've, I've talked to them. They just go the other direction and they just become too like too much like mommy. And yeah. it just becomes a lot about comforting and affirming. And, and it just, it doesn't work. That's not what gay men need. You know, it, that is the opposite of what they need. I mean, it may be rocky at the beginning, but eventually it's going to work out. And I just stuck to those priests that that were like that with me, that just, they just didn't treat me like a gay guy. They just treated me like a man 
who just had been wounded, made all the wrong decisions, but but just needed help. And and, and they just, challenged you, right? I mean, oh gosh, that's what you, guys need. Are you kidding? <laughs> yes. I mean, the father, the first time I went to confession, he just said, "Okay, Joe." He said, "This is what you got to do." Uh, you're you're exactly right, Steve. Men, we need we need to be given direction. You know, we don't need a lot of handholding. We don't need to t- necessarily talk things through a lot. You know, because that you know, I hadn't been I hadn't been to church or confession in 15 years. I had done everything under the sun in the gay world, mm-hmm. and that confession it probably took about 10, 15 minutes because you know the pre- I would say not 15, 10. Because the priest just said, hey, Joe, this is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. And he gave me clear direction. And it was awesome. And he said where to be, you know, come to this church, be at my mass, be at the Latin mass, you know, be here, go to confess. And I just did it. (laughs) You know, that's awesome. (laughs) I mean, seriously, thank God for that, because that's grace in action right there. He did. He's he just he's just was very very clear about what I needed to do. He just didn't beat around the bush. God bless him. Let me ask you this. So, <laughs> on the flip side of this, you know, we go back a couple years, and we have this statement from Pope Francis that's become infamous now: "The Who Am I to Judge?" Which was oh, yeah. the shot heard around <laughs> the world. I mean, and he landed on the cover of the Advocate, and he landed on the cover of who knows how many magazines as the gay-friendly pope with no hate written on his face and all this stuff. But you know, to the, it's unclear how much he was willing to be co-opted by that, but he didn't do anything to correct it either. So, what effect do you think that has had since he hasn't distanced himself from that statement um, on people doing the work that you're doing? I think to a certain group now. Now, I was offered a T-shirt at the last Gay Pride Parade in San Francisco, and it had a picture of Pope Francis with, you know, who am I to judge on it? And I said, you know, thank you, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so I mean, that certain message is in the gay community at large. Has it converted anybody over to Catholicism, thinking that Catholicism has become liberal? No, absolutely not. No, what it has is fed into a certain narrative Going back, Steve, where I was talking about these sort of toxic parishes where mm-hmm. you have gay affirmative, it's fed into that whole narrative. And I see it because I see the statements that they put out and, and I go to their meetings sometimes in their talks. And the narrative that they have is that the church is changing, that the church is just going to reverse itself on all of these issues, gay marriage, all of it. This is what they honestly and earnestly believe because, and I'm not, again, I'm not blaming the the guys in the pews, but this is what they've been fed by. And and you know what? When I came to the church, I could have moved into that direction too. I don't know. But just through the grace of God and I met a good priest, I didn't. But, um, you know, that's where it's become a problem is in these gay-friendly, gay-affirmative parishes where all, where those sort of, buzzwords and things have have caused a problem. Do you think there's more of that kind of thing happening maybe in more parishes now because people who oh. were a little bit more hidden about it are now feeling empowered? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because I can tell you that when Cardinal Ratzinger was Pope, uh, they hated him. Hate, 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 hate was Please. just, yes, it was, it was very palpable because he 
they'd hate him because he put that whole disordered thing into the the church lexicon. Right. And um, when Francis came in, it was a different, you know, whether their new belief in him was founded on, you know, on fact or fiction, but, you know, they believed that the old mean, you know, bigoted Pope was out and, you know, a new, you know, fresh forward and one was in. So, but this is, this has wrought, and my point is this has wrought disunity in the church. Yeah. And it's very sad because you have gay men and women who don't know what to do. And it's very off-putting. I can tell you, I don't know if I would have came back to the church if I, when leaving gay, knew this bizarre, you know, miasma that was going on in the church because it's been very difficult to maneuver. And only, again, only through the grace of God have I been able to do it. But it's very off-putting to people on the outside. It's very difficult to overcome because I talk to these people in the gay community and they don't particularly like the Catholic Church for several reasons. And one of them is because it's wildly inconsistent on this yeah. issue. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it literally is a case of if you're in one parish and you don't like the homily or the counseling that you're getting, <laughs> just go to the next one and you might get a completely different answer. Steve, let me tell you this. I will scandalize people. In, <laughs> in San Francisco, you can literally walk from one parish where you have a dear and blessed priest who really is online with the Catholic teachings on homosexuality. You can walk over the hill to a parish where the priest will bless your same-sex marriage. Mm. That's, that's how that's how insane it is, and that situation that situation cannot continue. Well, why is nothing done? I mean, I, I know <laughs> p- people think of Bishop Cordelioni as a hero that I don't think he's quite earned the the badge of honor uh, for yet. But I mean, there are bishops; they have power. I assume that they have power. You know, maybe they're they're hemmed in. I don't know. I, why does this not change? Again, I think it's complicated. It goes back to what I was talking about, where you have priests who are gay affirmative for several reasons, end up in parishes where you have large gay communities, and they just they get settled into that ministry. And I think bishops are reticent, maybe fearful, to step into that, to step into that politically, because it becomes politically charged. They're reticent to step into that mess. And um, it's going to take, it's going to take somebody with a lot of guts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and somebody who's not, not only not worried about the the political implications, but the financial ones, because frankly, that's really where a lot of that hold is. Yes. I I, I believe. Um, Let me ask you this. So with the synods on the family, we've had a number of theologians and clerics concerned about a sort of institutional Catholic deconstruction of marriage. And we also saw in the 2014 Synod that there was language in the midterm report about homosexuals having unique gifts to offer the church and so on. Do you have thoughts on how these synods and Amoris Laetitia afterwards are influencing the cultural and religious understanding of human sexuality? Because frankly, I mean, the battle we're fighting right now for marriage, I I see these things as all connected, but I'd be curious to see what you think. Again, I would say in terms of the gay community, because um, that's that's the only thing I know, is is within the gay community at large, I'd say the influence is negligible. 
um, within those gay-friendly parishes, um, these, you know, confused men and women watch very keenly, they're not stupid, very keenly what every pope, bishop, priest says. They latch on to it. If it's gay affirmative, they throw it out there and um, it's it's sad. It's, it's pathetic in a way because it affirms whatever delusions they have about their sexuality and their relationship with God and the church. It affirms it. And then they use that as a way to sounds rather nefarious, but they use this as a way to recruit others into this movement, which wants to, which is ultimate goal, is to change all of these teachings in the church. And I mean, they have done this in a meticulous way. I mean, if you look at groups like New Ways Ministry, um, Dignity, um, I mean, they have been able to co-opt bishops and priests into this movement that buy into this stuff. And consequently, these men, you know, for whatever reason, have been able to get into the hierarchy of the church all the way up to the Vatican and influence this stuff. It's just madness. It's madness. But I mean, you know, we've seen... We've seen indications from members of of the gay community over the last few years that that the whole push for gay marriage is at least in part an attempt to destroy same sex. I mean, opposite sex marriage, normal traditional marriage. Um, have you seen that sentiment? I mean, we've seen some articles and things like that from from leaders in that movement. But I mean, is that really even a thing? Or no, no, you don't think no. so? No, you know what I think it is. I think the embrace, we don't have enough time for this. I think the embrace of gay marriage by the gay community is a symptom of collapse. It's a symptom of failure. Because when I got into gay, in the, even in the 80s, the last thing anybody wanted to talk about was gay marriage. It was all about sexual freedom and, you know, throwing off these uh, bourgeois, you know, heterosexist, uh, sexist, you know, con, um, notions of marriage and monogamy. You know, that's not what we were about. You know, we were coming out of the 60s, you know, flower power generation where we wanted to sleep with who we wanted to, when we wanted to, you know, nobody could tell us, you know, we did not want to be like our parents. Right. You know, that's why we went to gay. You know, this bizarre sort of embracing of normality and middle-class values that you see in like Ellen DeGeneres and Nate Berkus and, you know, people like this is, is, you know, signaling that the gay experiment has failed, that Mm. essentially they are retreating, you know, to everything that they fought against and hate it. Uh, you know, and it has to do, I think it has to do with AIDS, which, which, you know, no one has really fully dealt with, including the gay community. AIDS and just the continuing ravages of HIV and gonorrhea and now syphilis and all these things in the gay community that nobody wants to talk about except the CDC. You know, it's just, it's just wrecked havoc and trauma in, in gay men. And um, they just, at a certain age, pull back 
and retreat from it. And, and the ultimate tragedy of it is that now you have the majority of the gay population being infected with HIV while in a committed relationship mm-hmm. because these pseudo, you know, June and Ward Cleaver relationships right. are, you know, they're not that. They're open, they're ambiguous. Um, uh, you know, they're susceptible to all these things about three ways and all this stuff. And it just, it, it's just, colla- it's just collapsing. Like I said, that's a fascinating take. And the only, I've never heard that before. But Is it? it? Oh. No, it makes sense. It actually does. I noticed it right away when I saw this stuff about gay marriage, because uh, like, again, when I was gay, it was not on the radar. And right. I just thought, where is it coming from? Um, Interesting. So let me ask you this. Something that you alluded to earlier and I wanted to come back to because I think it's one of the more practical pieces of advice. And honestly, I kind of think you should write a guide for for priests and people who evangelize in this community so that they can have an idea of the approaches that work. But but this is one that you and I have had personal conversations about, um, which is that when someone that you love is living this life of toxic sexual disorientation you have to let them go. Um, mm. And you talk about the parable, parable of the prodigal son, but not in the way most people would think. You have an interesting take on that. Would you explain, you know, the, the, the role of the father speaking to the son as he leaves? Yeah, I just, yeah, because I, I just get these tortured, tortured letters um, from parents of usually gay boys. And, um, they just don't know what to do because quickly, um, and I've seen this a thousand times, quickly a gay you know, young man or woman will present an alternative spe- specifically to the parents, you know, saying, you accept me, but you know, the, all of it, you accept this or I'm going to punish you, you know, and this mm. goes back to the whole family dynamic. All this stuff goes on in the family. All of it's all family centered. Um, you know, it doesn't take place in society in some sort of, you know, vague, you know, it's all family related and most, and I would say tragically, and I get this from Catholic parents over and over and over again, most fold because I'm not a parent, but I can understand that they don't want to say goodbye to their kid because the kids will say, I'm not bothering you. If I cannot come home with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, or my husband, we are not. And I did that to my mom and dad. Because when my dad said, get out, don't come with these freaky people. I said, you know, if my friends are not welcome here, neither am I. And I said, goodbye. So, um, you know, but my, <laughs> my dad's Italian, and he, and he could deal with that. He's just tough. You know, so um, parents just won't do it. They just won't do it. And uh, they just have to, because I said to make it easy, you know, the prodigal father did not let his son carry on and bring the whores home. You know, he just right. said, if this is the life you want to get into, you need to go do it. Here you go. I love you. Bye-bye. And that's, it's, it sounds so harsh, but there's just no other way because you enable and I know families like this and and I have experiences with them and I try to counsel them, but I have families where they just are enabling the children. It's, it's so sad 
because they have the kids home with the boyfriend and the girlfriend for Christmas and everybody puts on a smile and and it's tacit acceptance of, and nobody says anything. And it's just like, you know, and then somebody usually on the outside of that family who everybody hates is homophobic, you know, (laughs) comes to me and says, I don't know what to, to do. And I said, it's very tragic. I hate to give you the bad news, but this boy or girl is never, going to leave the gay lifestyle because they don't have any choice because everybody in the family is just on board. So, I mean, they have nobody challenging them. Why should they leave? Unless the only reason they'll leave if they get AIDS or something horrible happen, maybe not even then they'll leave, but they're just, they're just not going to walk out. It's, I mean, you're right. This this is, I, (laughs) I wish people would talk about this. I wish we would hear this. More often, no, because people need to be equipped with an understanding that sometimes love doesn't mean being someone who coddles another in their sin. Actually, it never means coddling someone in their sin. I don't mean to beat up on mothers, but usually it's the mothers that do that. The fathers, because I know a lot of these families and I talk with them, fathers a lot of times will just shut up. If they're in the picture, they just won't say anything. They'll sit in the chair and watch TV and you know the son is there with the boyfriend and but the mother will nurture and these these are my two sons and all this this ridiculousness you know so fathers need and i'm you know i talked about mothers and i'm gonna lay it on the father you know fathers can make a gay son and they can unmake a gay son um and they just got to do it I mean, this goes to the crisis of manhood. I actually wrote an article Ooh. about that today. Ooh, I mean, it's a yeah. crisis of manhood kidding? in the family you, and in the church. Oh, oh, are you kidding? Are you kidding? That's why I talked about the priests, you know, being manly. And, you know, that's yeah. why I kind of, I initially kind of went to the SSPX because there were young priests, priests that were um, affirmed in their masculinity and, and just, you know, they were good guys. They're compassionate, but... You know, they just looked at me as an, as another guy and they just said, you know, shape up. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, <laughs> you know, you don't have to have gone into the whole gay experience to be a guy who's in Gen X. I mean, I, I was looking at your bio, you're eight years older than me. We're all screwed up. We all don't know how to be men. I mean, let's just be honest. I don't know how to be a man. I've got seven kids and I'm still trying to figure it out. Wow. Um, well, you know something. I know something, but I mean, uh, I, I make more mistakes, I think, than I get things right. And, and I'm realizing it and I'm realizing I need to fix it. But I often, I find myself, Joseph, looking at my boys going, I need to teach you how to be a man and I don't know how to be one. I, I don't know how to impart to you what it is that you need to know. Because here I am, I'll be 40 next year and I haven't figured it out. But you have humility and that's a big part of being a man. You think? Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because the gay world worships this inflated, fetishized caricature of masculinity. And that's mm-hmm. what you see everywhere in the gay world with these sort of overpumped steroid guys that they put on the floats and everything. You know, that's not what, what manhood is like. Because the, like the priest that brought me back into the church was a physically, was a physically small guy, you know, he wasn't, 
you know, he wasn't a big guy and he wasn't loud and, you know, he wasn't boastful, but he just was affirmed and confirmed and secure in his masculinity. And he can impart that to other people, not by so much what he did, but I mean, just by, by being. Yeah. And, and I kind of talked about that with the, with the Latin mass where there was just a beauty in that where men could just bring beauty into the world just through their actions. And it, it wasn't like a pre-centered mass like you have in Nova Soto, where it was all about what the priest said and how he acted and how he smiled or, you know, his sermon or something. It was just the beauty of the mass that this man could bring into the world. And it, it just got me thinking like totally different about what manhood what was. And maybe it wasn't so much about doing something. It was just about, just about being. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. And actually, it holds true everywhere I've been. I've been going to Latin Mass for a dozen years now, and I've been all over the place. And uh, everywhere I go, I notice the number of, of young men, attentive oh, yeah. men, fathers, oh, fathers oh, with yeah. big families, fathers who know how to handle their children. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's just, it's a completely different experience than the old ladies in tennis shoes that you see, you know. know, at most parishes. That's, that was my experience when I, because I came out of the Simon and Garfunkel mass of the 1970s, mm-hmm. which just turned me off even as a kid. And when I went back to the church in 99, I just kind of found it was still there. There were no men there. There was just too many women on the altar with extraordinary ministers and lectors. It was just a, it was just a, it was just a church divorced of the masculine. I mean, even Jesus, I write about this too, was just so feminized. And that's <laughs> My not friends what and I, I would always joke that Jesus is a butterfly <laughs> from the mountain. That's what they would teach us, you know. <laughs> but, but I mean, I went into gay, you know, looking for masculinity and didn't find it. You find something that you think is but masculinity. But when I, when I went to the traditional mass, and since we're on the whole Tridentine mass, I mean, that's what I found. I mean, you talk about that in the pews where you have like young guys with kids and all this stuff. And you had, you know, very masculine priests on the altar. Again, not necessarily like they were butch and tough, but they were just they were just grounded in the truth yeah. and grounded in reality and just em- embodied certainty in faith. You know, they weren't equivocal. They weren't wavering. They weren't, um, it's hard to explain. You know, they just, they weren't trying to, you know, make me feel good or whatever, or, you know, play into my insecurities or whatever. They could just see through stuff. I mean, you know, like I said, gay is a simple thing. It's, you know, they've got all these experts and LGBT stuff in the church right now. You don't need it. It's a simple thing. It's somebody wounded. And with a wounded man, another man can just see it and point it out and just guide this guy back into the church and into the faith and into health. And it's just so easy. We don't need all these experts a lot of time they're women and their religious sisters that get into all this lgbt ministry that's what we don't need that's not what gay men need that's profound it really is it is 
I mean, look, you know, it's something we say a lot is save the liturgy, save the world. There is something, and I just wrote about this this past week. I kind of, I think it was a grace that God gave to me to, to understand that there is something about the way we worship him gives us perspective on our place in the universe, our, our role, our duties, our obligations, um, you know, where we stand before oh, yeah. him. And in, and in any mass that gives us a cause to worship ourselves or to focus unduly on oh, how yeah. we feel about the mass or or the priest is looking at us and we're looking at him and we're having what what appears psychologically to be a conversation. Yeah. We lose sight of of divine majesty and of our place and of the nobility and, and the nobility that is in the, the old mass, I think is one of the things that really attracts men. There's there's ceremony, there's there's structure, there's you know, it's almost a military kind of a thing. It, it, there's just something you, about you, it that feels you right. Don't, yeah, and you don't hold hands. No, you don't hold hands. I don't want to hold your hand. I don't. I don't either. I don't want to hold anybody's hand. <laughs> don't touch me. I'm praying. Stop. I don't want to hold my wife's hand. I, I, I love her. I'll hold her hand later, but not now. We're we're at mass, and yeah, people get so offended when you don't want to do that. But it's like it's not about you. It's about God. I'm here for Him. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. It yeah. was the church. The church and the liturgy. When I came back to the faith, and I knew nothing, was just very inherently off-putting to me how did you find a latin mass in san francisco in the 90s how did you do that yeah you know it was difficult they weren't around that much um i just i just walked out of a church and um i just was kind of like i'm not gonna do it anymore i found out through the grapevine that there was a priest offering a novus ordo mass in latin so i went to that and I kind of thought, you know, this this is cool. And then, you know, back then... I call that know, the gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's you how know. I got started, too. Yeah, I mean, it, it was cool. And there was, you know, and all of us Latin mass people kind of hang out together. And there was a lady there that, you know, with the mantilla and the big missile book. I had no idea what this right. stuff was even about. And um, she said there is an FSSP, the Fraternity St. Peter, mm -hmm. in Sacramento. Oh, and yeah. I was like, oof, I goes, that's like an hour drive. But I just said, you know, this is a matter of life and death for me. I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. So I just said, I'm making the commitment. And the, at that time, the fraternity was in a, just a dumpy, <laughs> oh, excuse me, just a not nice neighborhood and kind of a rough area. That's usually but... where they end up sticking. Us. <laughs> <laughs> you basically need to go armed to mass if you're going to survive the experience. It was close to that. It was, it was rough. People, you know, people clued me in and said, you know, don't leave stuff in the car and blah, blah, blah. And right. I met the priest there. And again, he was a small, a short guy, but I just knew he was a man and just a man of truth. And I just, and he's the, the priest that really helped me. And I just hung her and he was, he, I mean, he knew my background through confession. He knew I was really struggling and he just let me hang around him a lot. You know, it's sorrowful that priests are so bogged down with administration yeah. and, and they become like parish facilitators. You can't get them for confession, let alone spiritual direction. Right. You know, because guys come to me and ask, well, who can I get for spiritual? I just say, good luck. You know, you're just not going <laughs> to, the priests simply do not have the time. Yeah, I haven't and, had spiritual direction in 20 years. I mean, yeah. yeah. 
But this priest, because all he was was a priest, he just let me hang around. It's sort of bizarre when you think about it, but he just let me hang around him. And he just, he just, um, he just, you know, it was just, he just was like a father to me. And, um, you could look at it as like St. Joseph and the boy Jesus. He just, he just guided me and taught me and just took the time to sit with me and went to, you know, he had adoration and he just was with me. I was very blessed with that. And he just modeled for me everything holy and manly and, and beautiful and, and he just did that for me when I needed somebody and um, God bless him. That is, that is fantastic. Um, man, a little choked up at that one. That's uh, <sighs> now look, nothing, <laughs> nothing breaks me down. Like uh, seeing God's grace in action. It's just, yeah. uh, it's a very moving thing. So let me ask you this as, as we move toward wrapping this up, because I could talk to you all day, but you probably have other things to do. So <laughs> I'm cool. y- you take a lot of heat for the positions that you hold. I know you do. I've seen it. I've seen you comment on it. Um, your, especially this week where there's so much focus on this issue. And I've even seen people make some very vicious comments to you about how, you know, people who think the way you do or, or why this tragedy in Orlando happened. Oh, I get that all the time. Um, you know, uh, how do you, how do you handle these criticisms? Where do you find solace? Where do you draw your strength? Well, first of all, I kind of don't look at their comment as necessarily bad because I figure, I mean, people that just think, like I said, when I'm outreach, some people just think I'm kooky. You know, some people just sort of are indifferent and walk away. You know, they don't really care. I mean, people that take the time to write something vicious down, it, it, it's, it's because I said something or I represent something that's bothering them. So I always sort of look at it as an attack, as a good sign, Yeah, you know. Because I just, you know, the devil's at work here and he's pulling and pugging, you know, pulling and tugging at people and, you know, they're reacting viciously because that's kind of the only way they know how to act back because they're hurt. They're wounded little boys. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't mean to be, you know, I don't mean to be, you know, sarcastic or paternalistic or whatever, but they're just little boys that nobody loved and, and, you know, for whatever reason, never felt love. And they just look at me and they're just attacking me because they think that I'm going to take away the only semblance of peace and love that they think they have in their life. And, you know, I don't want to do that. I just want to offer them a different kind of love and peace. You know, like the Holy Father said, something that's eternal. You know, that's all I want to offer to you. You know, so I don't hate you and, you know, I'm not mad at you or whatever. But just listen to me, you know you know, accept or reject it. That's up to you, but don't, don't shut me down just cause you don't like it. You know? Yeah. So. Are you safe? I mean, do you get threats? People worry about you. Oh, do they? <laughs> I, yeah. I used, yeah, I used to, um, I used to own my own business, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of like what, you know, what do you do after you were like involved with porn <laughs> right. and gay? Yeah. You know, so people ask, I said, the well, resume I opened, is a little dicey at that. Point. I opened a Bible bookshop, you know, so I did that for actually 12 years and, and really nobody knew who I was. And then, you know, I ended up on the Howard Stern show and I wrote my book and, 
um, yeah, I mean, for better or worse, that made me known. And people started coming in, you know, because they could find me on the internet and they would come into my shop and it got dicey there. Um, it wasn't good. So I had to close and um, be a little, be, you know, be secretive. <laughs> Well, thank God for the internet that people you can actually. Yeah, I mean, pe but people can't call me or find me. Hopefully now, because yeah, yeah, yeah it got it got weird. Um, well, I'm gonna, I mean, encourage our listeners <laughs> and readers to pray for you for the work that oh, you're doing because this you. is, you, I mean, this is you for the rest of your life, right? I mean, this is as long as you can. This is your mission. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna be a gay pride uh, over. It's the largest, you know you know, meeting of, you know, the LGBT, whatever community in the world in San Francisco, they get over a million people, which is larger than the population of the city. I don't know how you do it. You're in the lion's den all the time. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I don't know. I just go down there and I just, I see all the same stuff I used to do. And, um, I mean, I, I'm never fearful for my life. I don't, I mean, I don't know. What are they going to do to me? Yeah. But, um, I mean, people get really nuts at me and mad. I've never had anybody hit me or, you know, I've had people threaten me and stuff. Right. But I just, you know, I just, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't get into it with them. I don't feed it. I just say, hey, God bless you. But you're you not know? confrontational. Yeah. And no, I, I don't do that. And I tell people that go with me, if I get any brave souls, I have a hard time finding them. I just say, hey, you know, we're not here to do um, apologetics and all this stuff. You know, I don't want to get in an argument with these people. I just say, hey, here's an alternative. You know, here's my card. Here's some literature. You know, dump it in the trash if you want. Take it home. I usually say, hey, you know, take it home. Look it over. You know, read it at le your leisure. Email me. Contact me. Tell me what you think. And that's it. You know. You know, so. Well, it's, I think, uh, an incredibly brave and much needed uh, ministry that you're involved in. Is there, is there anything else you want to share? How can people support your work? Um, you know, just pray for me and pray for, uh, you know, our brothers and sisters that are caught up in this lie and pray for the church that the church, you know, can just mirror those men that help me so much. Just, you know, we need brave, stout men of, you know, good hearts and, that just want to preach the truth to these people that are so hungry for it. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we need. I mean, if that, if we don't have that, what do we have? You know, we have nothing, you know? So that's what we, that's what we need. The, the, the church just needs to raise up, you know, saintly men. Joseph, thank you so much for your oh, time. I welcome. really appreciate it. You're welcome. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1 Peter 5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1 Peter 5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page located at 1peter5.com forward slash donate and make a contribution. It's tax deductible and not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, 
I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.